0: I still have to learn how to put the mute button off. Thank you so much. uh, It's so good to be here tonight and to end of the Lord's Day together. I'm so encouraged to see so many people come out on the Lord's Day evening. If you have your Bibles, please turn me to Jonah chapter 4. And we're concluding, as has been mentioned, our series uh, this evening. Uh, So far in this series, uh, one way to look at it, we've seen a prodigal prophet in chapter 1. We've seen how... Jonah flees from God, yet as he flees from God in rebellion, we've seen how God's grace pursues him. We've seen in the second chapter a praying prophet, how Jonah prays at the very point of death that the Lord would save him, and yet there we see God's grace rescue Jonah. In the third chapter, we see a preaching prophet, one who preaches reluctantly to Nineveh, and there again we are Uh, called to marvel at God's grace as he redeems a people like Nineveh. This evening, however, we're looking at what some have called a pouting prophet, how Jonah, we see, gets angry with the Lord, and again, we are confronted with God's grace. God's grace that patiently persists with us, but also God's grace that confronts us and challenges us And so with that in mind, let's turn to the passage uh, and read. Just for context sake, let me read from chapter 3, verse 10, all the way to the end of the book. This is God's word. Let's hear it. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, "Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Only really so far in the reading of God's Word. Uh, let's pray together again. O oh God, our God, we come before you this evening We come before your word and we pray that you'd be gracious to us and that you'd bless us and that you'd make your face to shine upon us so that your way may be known on the earth and that your saving power be known and declared among all nations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. He created us in his image to reflect him in all of creation. Genesis 1 26 and 27. He promised a son to Abraham that would bless the nations. Genesis 12 2. He saved Israel as a people to be a kingdom of priests, to serve him among the nations. Exodus 19:5-6. He gave his law to his people so that they would attract the admiration of his people in the nations. Deuteronomy 4, verse five to eight. He even envisions a divine king who will reign over all the nations forever. Psalm 45:17. He, envis- he welcomes even those outside of Israel to come into his presence, to pray him and seek him in prayer, 1 Kings 8, 41-43. He plans to have the nations come out of darkness and worship him in his light, Isaiah 61 3 He finally sends his eternally begotten son, to draw the nations to himself that they would not perish but have eternal life, John 3, 16. He even sends his spirit to fill his people, the church, to give them power to bear witness, Acts 1, 8. And he commissions the church to make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 18, he draws a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to come around him and worship him. Revelation 7 9. He ends all of history, actually, where all the nations come to be healed around the tree of life. Revelation 22 2. What's my point? I want you to see that we serve a God who has a mission. We serve a God who is seeking his glory among the nations. Not just for the sake of His own glory, but for the sake of the good of the nations. That they can come and taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34:8), That they can be glad and rejoice in His salvation, Isaiah 25, 9. So they can know this God whom they've been made for, Jeremiah 31, 34. So that they can be his children all to the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians 5 or 1, 5 to 6. Ultimately so that they would know that he is God and that they would ultimately glorify him and see him and take the light in him. That's what Jesus prays in John 17, 24. See, we serve a God who is on a mission. We serve a God who is seeking His glory for the good of the nations as He pours out grace to the nations. Even as you sit here tonight, perhaps you're an unbeliever, perhaps you're a believer, you need to know that God is on a mission for your heart, for your life. He longs to glorify Himself in and through your life. He seeks His glory among the nations as He extends His grace to the nations. Isn't this what we see in Jonah? A God on a mission. A God who for his glory extends grace for the good of undeserving sinners. Sinners who rebel against him, who flee from him like Jonah. Sinners who perform vile acts like Nineveh. Sinners like you and me. The question for us is, do we share this God's mission do we share his heart for the nations? Are we have people who, like God, extend grace to others so that they would glorify God and enjoy him forever? Or are we perhaps like Jonah in this chapter who despise grace being extended to others because we want to keep grace to ourselves and enjoy God's goodness all to ourselves? You need to see that in Jonah chapter 4, the writer is purposely contrasting for us Jonah on the one hand and God on the other. This chapter wants us to see how the prophet of God is completely unlike God. Now the prophet of God is God's opposite in a sense. You see this this contrast in the start. God is slow to anger. We see that he relents of his wrath. Yet Jonah is slow to, is quick to anger. In fact, he burns in wrath. And you see this contrast at the end. God cares for the multitudes. He has pity for them. He has compassion for sinners like Nineveh. But Jonah cares little. He only cares for that which brings him comfort. See, in this chapter, God's grace confronts Jonah Having seen how God's grace pursues him, how God's grace rescues him and redeems sinners, Jonah fails to reflect this grace of God. Dear friends, in this chapter, the God who pursues and rescues and redeems sinners comes and confronts us as well. Do we reflect this God? Now to see... How God's grace confronts us. Let's look at our passage. There are three things I want you to see this evening. Which is firstly, God's character despised in verse one to four. God's character despised in verse one to four. Uh, verse one to four are quite shocking. Actually, they're, they're, they're spectacular for all the wrong reasons. Uh, Jonah's ministry has experienced revival, and you'd expect him to be glad. Uh, I'm not just speaking for myself, I'm speaking for Clinton and Carl and every preacher. We long for the days that our preaching brings revival. We long for the days that people actually respond and they look like they're paying attention. We long for that revival. Perhaps we need to preach five words as well. But instead of joy, Jonah is consumed with fiery anger. Now, our, our English translations don't do justice to verse 1. The first clause of verse 1 literally reads, It was evil to Jonah, a great evil. Even look at the ESV's footnote. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Now, what is this exceedingly evil thing for Jonah? What is this thing that causes such displeasure? Well, it's the fact that God relented of the disaster in another. Interesting, the word for the disaster, for disaster in chapter 3, verse 10, is the same word for displeasing in chapter 4, verse 1. And the idea is this, the disaster for Jonah was the fact that disaster didn't befall Nineveh. And it's all very ironic, isn't it? When God turns from being angry, we see the prophet of God turning and becoming angry. In fact, the language is quite strong there. Jonah isn't just angry. The word, therefore, angry, uh, comes from this idea to be hot, to burn. See, Jonah is enraged. He's furious. He's consumed with his rage. And and what's truly shocking here is is the realization that Jonah's uh, anger isn't just merely directed toward Nineveh. No, it's directed toward God. Against God himself, it's God's actions that are evil in Jonah's eyes. In fact, it's God's character that causes Jonah this anger. Look at verse 2. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Not only are we given the reason for why he fled in chapter 1, but here we're told what Jonah's problem is. His problem is God. Jonah is someone who has sound theology. He quotes Exodus 34, 7, which is quoted throughout the Old Testament. He knows God. He knows that God is gracious, that he delights to show favor to undeserving sinners. He knows that he's a merciful, tender, compassionate God to those in need. He knows that he's slow to anger, not wishing that any would perish, but that they would turn and live. He knows that God is loving and abounding with covenant faithfulness. Jonah knows all of this, and he doesn't like it. Or, or perhaps better said, he doesn't like it when God is like that with people like Nineveh. Jonah happy when, when, when God is gracious and compassionate to him. Remember how he benefited from God's grace in chapter 2, how he rejoiced, saying, Salvation belongs to the Lord. See, he's happy that God is gracious and compassionate, but he's not happy. In fact, he's furious when God is himself, when God is gracious and kind and compassionate to people, even like Nineveh. Behold, Great hypocrisy. And you see at the heart of his hypocrisy is Jonah's radical self-centeredness. You see the self-centeredness in his prayer. In two verses, he refers to himself as I, me, my, eight times in the ESV, nine times in the Hebrew. He is focused all upon himself. He's trying to justify himself before God. You even see the self-centeredness in his death wish. He says it's better for me to die than live. Now think about that for a second. Jonah is saying, I'd rather be dead than see God be gracious to them. I'd rather be dead than change my heart, my desires. Instead of letting God be God, instead of having God give grace to others, I'd rather be dead. Now Daniel Timmer is right when he says that here in Jonah we see an unprecedented egoism that sees him put God in the dock. Now, now, I don't want us to be too harsh on Jonah here. At least he's praying, right? He's, he's angry, but at least he's praying. At least he's got some faith. He's, it's a bitter, selfish faith, but it's faith nonetheless. And even God isn't harsh with Jonah. Against Jonah's fury, God comes and he just makes this, or, makes, or asks this gentle question, do you do well to be angry? And Now there's comforting that isn't there. All of us, like Jonah, if we're honest with ourselves, are bound with hypocrisy. All of us fail to truly appreciate God's grace in our lives, and we fall short definitely of showing that grace to others. All of us, like Jonah, are one moment we do, at one moment we do well, we, we obey God, we serve Him well, and the next we don't do so well. We sin, we act foolishly, we follow our own wills and wants. And yet, as with Jonah, God is patient with us. He, he doesn't cheat us as our sins deserve. No, He's long suffering. And so take comfort of this fact that, that God comes to Jonah and he, he's kind, gentle. Now, now there are a few lessons uh, we need to learn here. Although we need to see that, that God is gracious and despite the fact that God is gentle and patient, we cannot overlook how Jonah has despised God's character. We cannot overlook to see how he has actually failed to glorify God. In fact, I would suggest that Jonah's example here offers us a few warnings. The first warning is this, the first lesson is this, beware heartless theology. You could say that Jonah had sound theology in the head, yet very poor theology in the heart. What he knew intellectually about God hadn't transformed his beliefs and his attitudes and his affections within his heart. And you realize, dear Christian, it's very possible for us to know that God is a God of grace and yet for us to be without grace. It's possible for us to to know many glorious things about God and yet fail to actually glorify Him and, and serve Him. That was the problem of Israel of old, wasn't it? Uh, that's the problem perpetually of God's people. This idea that they approach him in worship, but their hearts are far away. Isaiah 29, God laments around his people. He says, this people draw near me with me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. While their hearts are far from me. I, I, I wonder in, in what we... I wonder in what ways we have often honored God with our confessions, but we've dishonored him by our compassion. I spoke to a friend a few weeks ago, and he made the very poor mistake of making this comment. We were talking about a church split, and he said, oh, well, it's not too bad, because that new church that was formed, all the good people went there, and just the bad people stayed behind As Clinton would say, what a wombat. <laughs> How can we treat God's people that we may disagree with as bad people? Imagine what he says about the unbeliever beware of bad theology or, or beware of heartless theology. That's what we see in Jonah good theology that lacks in the heart second lesson is this, beware of spiritual blindness. We of spiritual blindness. According to Jonah, the Ninevites are beyond salvation. They were just too evil, too wicked, too greedy, just too far beyond God's grace. And I would argue Jonah is doing something here that most of us probably do. We, most of us, divide all humanity into two groups. Those who are essentially good people, not perfect people, but not bad people that are doing their best. At least they're not rapists or murderers or abusers or politicians. I don't know. There are those people, good people, and then there are those really evil people, those who murder, those who rape, those who commit violent crimes, the Ninevites of our day. And and realize that's not how the Bible divides people. No, according to God's word, we are all evil. I was just reading in my devotions this Saturday, Psalm 14, 2 to 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on to the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And he says, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt, Perverse. There is none who does good, not even one. See, the divide, the, Bible, the divide that the Bible gives us is between those who are spiritually blind to their sin, who in their self-righteousness or their self-deception think themselves better than they are, and the other divide is those who actually see their sin, those who see their need. Think of the parable in Luke 18 about the tax collector and the Pharisee. The One exalts himself with pomp. Lord, at least I'm not as bad as that poor tax collector in his self-righteousness. While the other humbles himself as a sinner. Lord, have mercy upon me. Let me ask you the question, which of the two are we? Are we like the Jonahs and the Pharisees who boast in our self-righteousness? Are we those who recognize our own need of grace? Daily, minute by minute. When people come in here, visitors, and I'm glad there are a few visitors here, what do they see? Which of the two people do they see? Beware spiritual blindness. Beware the spiritual blindness that we see in Jonah. But let me move on. Second thing I want you to see this evening is, is not just God's character despised. I want you to see, uh, secondly, God's care disregarded. God's care disregarded. In verse 5 to 9. Uh, in, in verse 4, we see how God asks Jonah this gentle yet searching question. But D- Jonah doesn't even stay around to give God an answer. No, Jonah simply disregards God in his fury. He apparently ends his prayer and he leaves Nineveh, he leaves the city. And outside Nineveh, Jonah builds this, this booth to see what happens. The idea seems to be that Jonah is waiting for God to, to be proven wrong. As some of the commentators point out, that they suggest that Jonah probably thinks that the repentance of Nineveh, of Nineveh was superficial. And so he's sitting here, in a sense, to see how God relents of his relenting. And again, there's another irony here for us. Uh, Jonah, we're told, builds a booth. And if you know anything about our Old Testament, you know there is something called the Feast of Booths. Sukkot, a, a feast that was meant to celebrate God's salvation. Well, here is Jonah, and he isn't celebrating the salvation of the Ninevites. No, he's sitting there, and he's angry at the salvation of the Ninevites. Yet despite all of this, however, despite Jonah's anger and arrogance, God in his grace still persists. God still comes near, and he still has compassion. I think that's mine. And God cares for Jonah with with an object lesson. He comes to God in this compassion, and he gives gives uh, Jonah this object lesson. Uh, three times he comes to Jonah and he appoints three things. This, this word appoint is mentioned four times in the book of Jonah. The first in chapter 117 where God appoints this great fish to take hold of Jonah. And so God appoints three more elements. Firstly, he appoints a plant in verse 6. A plant to give shade to Jonah, uh, to, to keep him cool under the Middle Eastern sun. And we're told, and this is quite important, Jonah, finally, his anger gives way to gladness. In the Hebrew, it's actually quite emphatic. It literally says, Jonah rejoiced over the pot with great rejoicing. But not just that, God appoints, secondly, a worm in verse 7, a worm that, that we're told quite poignantly attacks the plant and, and strikes the plant and eats at it so that it withers and dies. And thirdly, he appoints a strong wind in verse 8, a a scorching eastern wind that, that also, same word, attacks Jonah. And the result is that Jonah, whose heart burned with anger, now he physically burns under the heat of the sun. So much so that Jonah faints in weakness, and again he just wants to die. Now, the all-important question is why? What's God trying to teach Jonah here? Why is God doing all of this to poor little Jonah? Why does God appoint the weed, the worm, and, and the wind, as someone has said? Well, I think just as a father lovingly disciplines a child so that he can teach the child and mature the child, I would argue that God, disciplines Jonah. God is appointing the word and the wind to attack Jonah. Why? Because he cares for Jonah. He he, he, he gives this uncomfortable grace, this this dark providence, so that he would teach Jonah and mature him. See, in this object lesson, God has for the moment taken Jonah's eyes off of Nineveh. And God wants wants Jonah to see two things, two lessons. The first lesson is this, and the lesson for us is this. Look how selfish Jonah is. Here we see Jonah was so overly focused on his own comfort in the shade that when he loses that comfort, he again wants to die. So, again, think about that for a second. He wants to die when, when Nineveh is spared from the fiery wrath of God, and he also wants to die when he sits under a burning sun. Do you see something of his misplaced priorities? Nineveh coming under God's burning wrath doesn't bother Jonah. But Jonah sitting under a hot sun leaves him wanting to die. Or consider from another angle. Jonah isn't moved to gladness when sinners repent. That's what Jesus tells us. Angels rejoice when sinners repent. But Jonah isn't rejoicing. No, he is moved to gladness only when he is comforted. Instead of being exceedingly glad when sinners repent and when they receive God's grace, Jonah gets exceedingly angry and seems he only is glad when he receives God's grace, when he is comforted. Do do, do you see something of his selfishness here? It's almost as if God is going to Jonah and saying, Jonah, do you not see how selfish you're being? Did you not see how your priorities are wrong? Dear friends, this object lesson should convict us even. How often do we not want to receive God's grace, yet not extend it to others? Not extend to others in need, not extend to those who are going through trials? Now you might say, that's not me, I'm gracious, I'm kind. Well, let me ask you, do you ever get jealous? They get jealous when others are promoted, when they see fruitfulness in their life, in their ministry, when they're successful. So we often um, mask this selfishness by that jealousy. And how often are we not focused upon our own comforts at the expense of our calling to bear witness? See, see like Israel of old, we sit at ease in Zion. We sit at ease in church church oblivious and unconcerned for others. And again, Jonah here is a warning to us. Beware of the selfishness that is more concerned for the grace that we receive, the comfort that we enjoy, than extending that grace. But there's another lesson in this particular passage. Secondly, not just look at how selfish Jonah is, look at how sovereign God is. Look at our sovereign God is here. Jonah is being taught by God that He is sovereign and He can do what He wants when He wants. When God gives the plant and then takes the plant away, Jonah is meant to see that God has the sovereign prerogative to give and take. In fact, I would suggest to you that Jonah has a problem with God's sovereignty. On the one hand, he's angry when God delivers Nineveh, yet on the other hand, he's angry when God destroys a plant. So whether God delivers or destroys, Jonah is angry. Why? Because Jonah has a problem with God's sovereign. Jonah wants God to answer to him. Jonah wants God to beat to, he, to run to his own beat. That's why God asked Jonah again, Do you do well to be angry? Again, it's almost as if God is saying, Jonah, who are you to get angry Who are you to question me? It's like Paul would say in Romans, but who are you, oh man? To answer back to God. Again, how desperately we need to learn this lesson. How often do we not want God to dance to the beat of our own drum? How often do we not want God to fall in line with us? In fact, when he doesn't, we we throw our toys out the cart and we get upset. Let's learn this lesson from Jonah. Let's behold how sovereign he is let's yield ourselves to his sovereignty. But, but don't forget this object lesson, these lessons that God gives Jonah and us, flow ultimately out of God's care. God doesn't leave us in our sin to wallow away. No, he wants to teach us. He wants to mature us. It's for our good that God wants us to see how selfish we are and turn from it. And it's for our good that he wants us to rest in his sovereignty. I think it's so telling that Jonah in this chapter is so despondent. So much so that twice he just wants to take his own life. So much so that he just wants to die. See, Jonah who is selfish and who rejects God's sovereignty is quite significantly and tellingly also a despairing and despondent person. Dear friends, I would argue the reverse is true. Denying self and resting in God's sovereignty is a catalyst for joy. Do you want to be joyful? Do you want to be glad? Do you want to overcome the worry and the despair and anger and fear and disappointments of this life? Well, firstly, deny yourself. Stop focusing on yourself. Stop looking for your will, your ones. Stop prioritizing your comforts, your desires. Uh, Keller says in one of his books, when something is wrong, our body typically tells us you get a stomach ache because something's wrong. Well, that applies spiritually too. If we're constantly drawing attention to ourselves, our wants, our desires, that's a symptom of something being wrong. Now, look beyond yourself and look above yourself. Look to the God who is sovereign. Look to the God who is sovereign in his grace who reigns as the Lord of lords and the King of kings, who who works all things for the good of those who love Him, who is even with His people in their difficulty, who cares for them, who loves them, who teaches them, who even disciplines them. See, when the sovereignty of God is forefront, He fills our hearts with joy even in trying times. Remember what David says in Psalm 16. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. Or remember Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. See, look to the Lord who is sovereign. Look to the Lord who is gracious. And and don't be like Jonah, focused on self. Before we move on, note, however, how Jonah responds. Jonah simply disregards this care. He simply will not listen and learn from the Lord. Whereas Jonah refuses to answer the first question, he 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 should have perhaps stayed quiet, but he answers the second one. And he and here we come to the lowest point in the book. He simply responds with this belligerent, almost blasphemous anger where he tells God, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. As one commentator points out, Jonah is so angry that his anger will end when his life ends. That's how much he's consumed with himself and his self-righteous anger. I don't know what else to say to that verse besides, may may that never be true of us. May the Lord keep us from this kind of spirit. Now, despite this belligerent Jonah, we must see and marvel again at God's grace. God at this point would have been justified to, to simply snuff this prophet out. We've just wiped the slate clean and found another better prophet. Yet again, we see God's relentless grace, how God comes to this prophet. And so the third thing I want you to see in verse 10 to 11 is God's compassion declared. Now, we've seen God's compassion throughout this chapter. You see God's compassion in verse 4 and verse 9, how God gently questions Jonah. You see his compassion in verse 6, how God still provides for his physical need, his comfort. But in verse 10 and 11, you not only hear and see, you both hear and see God's compassion. And God's compassion is meant here to be contrasted with Jonah's compassion. That word for pity in the ESV means to be troubled. It means to be grieving over something. Therefore, even weeping over it, looking over it with, with sympathy and compassion. In a sense, you could say, It means to attach your heart to something or someone. And note, God reasons you with Jonah. He he reasons from the lesser to the greater, from a plant to the people. If Jonah has compassion for a plant, a plant that exists today but is gone tomorrow, then how much more so should Jonah not have compassion on 120,000 souls that will live forever? If Jonah has compassion for a plant, a plant that he didn't labor for or care for, how much more so should Jonah not have compassion on a city of people made by God in his image? See, this contrast between Jonah's compassion and God's compassion is meant to point out to us how unlike God Jonah is. Jonah's heart is set on a plant because it's all about his comfort, but God's heart is set on people. What a comfort this ought to be to us. You are evil people, violent people, murderous people, the Ninevites, and God sets his heart to them. He has compassion on them. Uh, Are you here tonight and you have done heinous sins? Vile sins, shameful sins. You need to know God is on a mission to save sinners just like you. He is in the business of giving grace to sinners like you and me. See, God is in a mission to save sinners, to show grace, to draw the nations to Himself, to show compassion. The question is do we share this compassion, dear believer? Have we set our hearts? upon people do we weep over the lost do we grieve over them as Christ grieved over Jerusalem a uh, spurgeon once said that winners of souls will first be weepers for souls a- and the sad reality of our passage is that Jonah the prophet of God seemingly doesn't share this mission or this compassion when acknowledging god's character when being shown god's care when being reminded of god's compassion Jonah, God's prophet, is God's opposite. He shows himself to be unlike God. And you'll notice we aren't given a response. We're we not told how Jonah responds because quite simply the response falls on us. How will you respond? What will you do with God's grace? Or perhaps if me ask it this way, who do you look like? God, who has compassion on people, or Jonah, compassionate about his pleasure and his comfort. And and realize, Christians, the contrast isn't just merely between God and Jonah. No, the contrast is between Jesus and Jonah. Jonah was a man who only shows care for his own comfort, who goes outside the city waiting to see people perish, Jesus, on the other hand, was a man who denied himself his comforts, who, who left the glory of heaven for the shame of a cross, who, who died outside the city so that those in the city and those in cities across the world would not perish, but have everlasting life. I answered your question, the question is, who do you look like? Jesus or Jonah? How do you know if you're looking like Jonah? Well, when your theology is heartless, when you're blind to your own sin and your own debt to grace, when you're selfishly concerned for your own comfort, when you're wanting the sovereign God to serve you and not you, Him, and when you're not concerned for people as God is concerned for people, then you're like Jonah. But if your theology makes you sing in worship and care for others, when you're aware of your own need and you plead out for mercy, when you're unselfishly concerned for those around you, when you yield yourself to God seeking to do His will, and when you're concerned for those whom God is concerned about, then you're more like Christ. Then you've joined God on His mission. Having received God's grace, dear believer, do you want to share God's grace? Do you want to see others glorify God and enjoy Him forever? God is on a mission and He has shared that mission with us. Uh, John Stott says this, it's, remarkable, it's a remarkable truth that the same God who worked through Christ to achieve our salvation now works through us to announce that salvation. See, we get to enjoy the salvation that God has lavished upon us, and we get to announce that salvation. We get to speak of what we have seen and heard. And we get to join our glorious God on His mission as He goes through this world, saving sinners like us for His glory and for our ultimate good. Let me close with this one quote by Theodore Williams to hopefully create a sense of excitement for us, for our mission. He says this, We face a humanity that is too precious to neglect. We know a remedy for the ills of the world too wonderful to withhold. We have a Christ too glorious to hide. And we have an adventure that is too thrilling to miss. May it be true of us that those who have tasted God's grace, we declare it to you, the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have made this promise that you will make us a light for the nations, that your salvation would reach to the ends of this world. And we pray, dear Lord, as we've considered the light of your word, that you would stir within us a greater excitement for your word and for what you are doing, that you would stir within us this love for you and a love for people, that we would not be like Jonah, but like Christ. And Lord, that you'd see fit to even use us for this end, for your glory and the good of those around us. We pray this in Christ.